I'm Rob Skinner, and this is the Rob Skinner Podcast. Today I'm talking to Jordan Wetterland. Jordan grew up in Twig, Minnesota. He lived in 13 different households in high school after running for his life from his stepfather who threatened to murder him. He found a way to go to college and lost his mom to a car crash his freshman year. After graduation, he moved to Boston for graduate school. That's where he met disciples who taught him the gospel. Listen as he shares how he dealt with his traumatic upbringing, how he made sense of his losses, and how he reconciled that with his relationship with God. All this and more on the Rob Skinner Podcast. Welcome back to the Rob Skinner Podcast. My goal is to inspire you to live a no-regrets life, make this life count, and multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. Jordan, welcome to the program. Hey there. You've had quite a personal odyssey growing up. Can you talk about where you're from? Yeah, so I'm from the motherland, as we call it, Twig, Minnesota. Um, Don't bother looking. You won't find it on a map, but it's near the Duluth area in Minnesota. That's that's cold country. Yeah, yeah. We grew up with a with a wood stove and having to cut a whole lot of wood for those negative twenty and negative thirty degree days. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. Now, are you Norwegian or Swedish or something? I'm yeah, a whole mix of Czechoslovakian, Scottish, German, and Irish. You bounced around quite a bit growing up. Can you just talk about a little bit about your upbringing? Like I said, I grew up in northern Minnesota in a more rural area. Think less farmland and more forest and trees and lakes and rivers. While I was young, my family unit stuck together. It was my mom, a stepdad, a younger sister, and an eight-year younger brother. Now, I was adopted around the time I was seven, and that was good. My mom and my adopted dad were together for several years um but eventually between um some alcoholism and just marital problems um their relationship ended and that's that's really where the bouncing around started for me around middle school around the age of middle school we would bounce back and forth between the stepdad's house and my mom's house and then when they got divorced um, i would stay mostly with my mom that ended up being a hard situation to grow up in because once they had become divorced, she looked for a lot of comfort in men. And so there's a lot of different men that would come around the house. And eventually um, one came around that wasn't, wasn't a safe person to be around anymore. He um, was a rather violent man. He had just gotten out of jail a few years or actually a few months prior to getting in a relationship with my mom for, for shooting someone. And, um, and so it was around the age of 13 when I had to leave home. And from there I lived with 17 or 18 different families between 
13 years old until the time I graduated high school. Oh my God. Okay. 13 different families. Yeah. Somewhere between 13 and 17. Somewhere. What, in what was your mom doing at this time? So she bounced around a couple jobs. Um, I think mental health was a big, big issue um, in my family. It's been a real serious thing. And um, my mom really struggled with, with hers um, between several diagnoses from um, bipolar depression. Um, she actually got diagnosed with narcolepsy and, um, and regular depression and anxiety. Um, she was having a hard time keeping her life um, looking normal, which made it really hard for her to pour out into her children and be what most of us would consider a regularly functioning parent. Um, and so she, she worked, she kept jobs, but her character um, as it declined with her mental health prevented her from keeping jobs, you know, whether it was being late or acting inappropriately in the office and things like this. So you, you grew up in this small town, really close to Lake Superior. You're, you're going around to 13 different homes. There's got to be a lot of small talk in a, a, a lot of talk in a, in a small area like that. What was that like in terms of just kind of what was going on in the community? Yes. The nice thing as a child um, is sometimes you're insulated from the exterior conversation. Um, while I did live with a lot of different families, I was naive to the perception of what was going on um, behind closed doors with my family. Um, I knew that my parents were hurting a lot of people around them, that a lot of people were offering them help. Um, and I knew I had several coaches that, you know, stuck their neck out for me to, to help me get to a place of safety or, or to be able to still stay on the sports team when um, maybe my parents didn't want me to, these sort of things. But, um, but as far as the small talk, I, I wasn't really aware of it. And then when I left home, um, the small talk was you know, conversations weren't about my family unit because I wasn't with my family unit anymore. Was it, was it a source of shame or a source of embarrassment? What, what was happening to you there growing up? I think frequently um, with people that have um, what we would consider traumatic backgrounds, um, we talk about survival mode. And frequently um, children and kids that grow up in survival mode don't understand the struggle because it's all they've known. And so for me, I think one of the amazing things is God blessed me with almost a naive optimism where I would go from one family and get kicked out of that house. And I might um, really be frustrated with feelings of um, not being wanted for a couple hours, but then I just locked in on how to, how to adapt and find the next place. Um, because it's what was necessary. I needed a, another place to lay my head at night. And so I just kept my head down and kept going. Okay. So that's, that's happening to you. What was going on with your, 
your is it a brother and a sister that you had? Right. Um, yeah, this this was that very question is one of the harder parts of my story is um, when I left home at the age of 13. The very day that I left home, that boyfriend had um, pulled me aside and he told me he had a couple of friends on his way to the house to come beat the crap out of me. And so I made the decision to not wait to see what that would look like. Um, but I also had to make the decision that if I didn't leave, I was never going to be able to help my siblings because I would live a life that reflects the life that I was in. And so I had to make the decision to leave my siblings behind, um, which made it very hard to sleep for the first couple of years after I left. Um, but I had to do what was right and, and know that they had a story of their own and that I had to make sure I controlled my story um, and able to help them more later on. Did you have contact with your mom when you were going around between the different families? Yeah, I did. Um, my mom since passed away, so I smile as I say this. Um, but she used to call me every week. Um, usually the exact seventh day from the last time I heard from her <laughs> and the conversation would go as follows. She'd say, Hey, Jordan, you know, I'm just calling, wanted to make sure you're still alive. And I'd say, yep, I'm still alive. And she'd say, okay, good. I love you. And I'd say, I love you too. And she'd say goodbye. And that was, that was the regular phone call week after week. <laughs> I hate to laugh. I mean, just that's, that's a pretty low bar. Just checking to make sure you're still breathing. Yes, but I, I really do and truthfully believe that with the with what she had at that time, that's that's all she knew how to do. That's all she could get to. And I mean, she would say frequently she's doing her best. And just sadly, sometimes um, when it comes to parenting, um, what a parent's able to offer as their best isn't enough for a child to be safe and to grow. And your brother and sister remain in that household? Yep. So my sister, um, she had a, she has a story even harder than mine um, that she's still writing right now. Um, she's 23 now and she lives on her own, but she, she stayed at home um, and, and lived with a lot of the terrible things that were going on. And my brother now lives with his dad still, and he's a senior in high school, and he's all set to graduate. He's doing really, really well. He's a kind, hardworking, just super awesome person. Okay, so you had this really upsetting, changing, constantly dynamic living situation in high school, but you actually made it into college. How'd you do that? Oh, I am so grateful that I made it to college. There was a family that I ended up living with for my entire senior year. They are still family to this day. Tom and Nancy Aldridge were their name. And they're the ones that taught me that Duke and North Carolina and Michigan State weren't just sports team names. <laughs> but they had schools attached to these things. And I was a very good basketball player. I had set my high school scoring record and unbeknownst to me, I was being recruited by 
<clears throat> by these schools that weren't just teams and had the chance um, to choose between some division three and division two schools to go play basketball. And, and this family would bring me to some of the local community colleges and state universities and tell me what would be wise decisions financially and really give me the opportunity to see that, you know, my story didn't have to end with working at the local gas station, um, but that I could go on and get an education because of the hard work that I had put in um, into sports at the time. How did you, how did you even do sports with such an unstable home life? You know, the unstable home life made it really easy because in a lot of the nights when I was bouncing around from house to house, I slept in the bleachers in the school gym. And when you're in the gym that late at night, after the janitors have left, you can get a lot of practice in putting that ball through the red rim up in the sky. You slept in the gym. Yeah, several times, you know, it, it really became a safe place for me. I'd go to the gym early in the morning and practices were five to seven. So if I got to school at five and I left at seven or eight, I could get a lot of basketball practice in during that time and have the safety and security of not worrying about if I was going to be, you know, hurt or in trouble or anything like that. If I just stayed in the school building itself. Mm. So that became like a refuge for you. The Definitely. Definitely. How, how about your coaches? Were they helpful? Yeah. Um, my high school coach became somewhat of a, of a father figure to me. He was a real straight lined guy. You know, we all had to have our hair cut short. We couldn't have facial hair. We had to wear ties and dress pants for game days. And, um, and in a lot of ways he taught me what it meant to be a mature person. Hmm. Wow. Okay. So you, you were encouraged to, to think about college. It, it, be, it got onto your uh, radar, so to speak. Little side note, how tall are you? I'm, I'm six two. Okay. So you're not massively tall. You're, you're not, I mean, you're a tall person, but you're not six ten or something like that. Right. Okay. Right. And where'd you end up going to college? So I went to a university real close to home. It's called the University of Wisconsin Superior. It's about 30 miles from um, where I was going to high school. Um, and it was a really affordable um, state school nearby. And because of reciprocity between Wisconsin and Minnesota, I got um, in-state tuition there. How'd you find the money to go to school? So that's a good question. Um, my my story with undergrad um, starts pretty hard. I, I went to school in Wisconsin and I was living on campus. And three weeks into my freshman year is actually when my mom passed away. I got a call on a Saturday morning um, from my little sister. I had ignored the first four calls at 530 in the morning as an older brother does when a younger sister calls them. And by the fifth one, I thought, I should probably answer this. And my sister called to tell me that there was a police officer at the front door. They had responded to a car crash um, that night and um, they were looking for the family of Robin Wetterland. And that's, that's my mom's name. And, um, and so 
I wasn't driving yet. And so I started making frantic phone calls um, to figure out how to, how to get home, how to be there with my family um, during this time. But um, because of my mom passing away and um, I, I, and her not being employed and things like this, um, kind of that first year of college was paid for um, by money that we had received from pensions and things like this that she had when she died. But I realized how quickly that number was getting large. And so I worked, I worked two or three jobs most of the time throughout undergrad um, to pay for school as I was going. So you, you went to school and just worked your way through and then you got some, some money from her passing. Yes. Okay. How'd you, I mean, how'd you cope with the loss of your mom? Like what, kind of impact did that have? Yeah, not very well, I think is the answer. Um, but ultimately it's what helped me see God for the first time. Um, when my mom died, I followed the example I had been given in the same way that um, in her trauma, she had turned um, to men for comfort. I turned um, to women similarly in relationships and um, you know, impure relationships and, um, yeah, just, just looking for any kind of feeling. I, I couldn't feel anything for a long time after she died. And I just went to try and find any sort of feeling. And frequently that was in relationships and, um, actually ended up in, um, in a particularly bad relationship where one of, um, my teammates, in in undergrad um, I was sleeping with his girlfriend and um, and it broke me I just I felt so disgusting and gross and couldn't couldn't really forgive myself for um, taking a similar path to what my mom had taken and um, and that's where the first disciples that God put in my path um, ran into me there was some other teammates um, that had grew up as missionaries in Africa and China and, and they went to church every Sunday and I told them what I had been doing and they made me confront um, the, the teammate that I was not being a very good teammate to, but they also just had a tremendous amount of grace with me. They, they didn't just judge me and treat me like I was a worthless human being, though I was acting like one. Um, but they started just being my friends. They, you know, have me over for dinner in their dorm room or their apartment. And um, I'd sleep on their futon when nights where I was really just distraught and struggling with the death of my mom and going to them just in tears. And, um, and they'd bring me to church, though I thought I was just hanging out with them at that time. <laughs> it meant nothing to me. But it's really cool to see how God pursued me long term through that story. Mm. Did you have faith growing up? Oh, when I was very, very young. Um, my mom was a disciple, actually, when she was in high school. I don't have any doubt. You know, she was baptized, um, making Jesus the Lord of her life. Um, and so some of my youngest memories are actually in church. Seeing my mom use her gift of singing um, for God's glory. Um, that quickly changed as 
her mental health changed, but um, that that's the only faith background I have is, is just really remembering um, my mom singing and just how beautiful she looked in front mm. of everybody um, singing worship songs. Wow. Okay. So you, your mom died in a car accident. Was it, was it alcohol related, drug related? Yeah. Yeah. She was, she was drinking one night and um, had gone to see another man and on her way home um, the road turned and she did not and she ended up in a grove of trees and um, yeah she was under the influence she had been drinking that night mm -hmm. so how old were you at the time that happened i was 18 yeah i was i was 18 years old she had just i'm so grateful she got to watch me walk across that stage for my high school graduation mm -hmm. um, and then just a few short months after that, um, she wasn't around anymore. And how old are you now? I'm 25. You're 25. 25. So it's been seven years. Okay. Okay. What brought you to Boston? How'd you get from Wisconsin to Boston? Right. So I got my degree and it was in social work. I wanted to help people with lives like I had, right? People that didn't have all the opportunities of a great family background. And so I moved out to Colorado to Fort Collins for a short while after I graduated. I worked in the mountains and I did my social work internship. I got licensed during that, those first couple months of COVID. And I moved back to a completely different part of Minnesota um, to work in an elementary school. And as I was the school's elementary school social worker, I was applying for grad schools. And during COVID, one of the three schools with accredited programs that had fees waived for applications was a state was a school called Bridgewater State University, and that's just south of Boston, Massachusetts, where I am now. Okay, so what inspired you to go to grad school? Um. What inspired me to go to grad school was I had finally learned how to be a student after barely graduating high school, failing out of my first year of undergrad. Um, they let me stay because of the story with my mom. Um, I decided I needed to figure this out. I had always, um, I'd always been a really intelligent person. My test scores were always the top of the class and I thank my mom for that when I was really young. She used to read to us every night. And, um, and so I've always been a really heavy reader. I've, I've read volumes on volumes of books. And, and I really think that that's, that's what helped me later on once I finally was in a safe place to pay attention to school. Um, but yeah, by the time I finished undergrad, what had started as a failing GPA ended up in the dean's list semester after semester. And um and my teachers really, um, and professors in, in college really believed in, in my ability to go further in schooling. Um, they encouraged me to go get a master's degree soon after graduating um, because of the ability that I was showing in my social work classes. And, um, and so that's, that's really what encouraged me. Um, and then there was... Um, 
yeah and then during covid I, I took that year at the elementary school because everything was online and i i really i didn't think i'd do well with online schooling and so i took the year to work which i was really grateful for before heading out to bridgewater what what's a little difficult for me is to figure out okay how did you manage to maintain yourself for four years of school financially just emotionally, you've lost your mom. You've gone through a crisis in, on your team. Like what, what kept you in there? How'd you stay on the rails, so to speak, in your life to complete a degree? I mean, it, it would have been so easy for you just to completely go off track. Yeah, that's where I, I thank God again, just for that naive optimism, that resiliency is probably the the psychological word we'd use now um to put my head down and just try and make the next best decision um i wasn't always great at it but i usually figured if i could just make one more good decision um or keep going just a little bit further that things always seem to work themselves out i mean i learned that when i was bouncing around homes that um that if I could just get to the next house, I'd be okay. And then, and then you kind of learn from there. I think one of the biggest lessons I've learned in my life is to let other people help me when they offer mm. to not be prideful and, and put up walls that don't let other people in. I think people really want to help generally speaking. And, and I let them, and that's, that's, other people's help is one of the most important parts of my testimony and one of the reasons that I am where I am now. Mm. Did you get help from people when you were in college? Were there some benefactors that helped you to, to, to navigate that time? Other than, um, other than the Christians that you mentioned? Yeah. I think in undergrad, I really was, was doing things... Um, kind of by the seat of my pants. I think there's a couple professors that really believed in me. Um, Dr. Cuzo was one. She was a legal studies professor, one of the sharpest people I've ever met. And she's the first person that, that challenged me in school. I think because I was intelligent, usually I could ace tests. And if I didn't do homework, acing tests was enough to get a C. Um, but she wasn't having any of it. She she said, well, if you're not going to do your homework, I'm going to have to fail you. And she read all my papers and she critiqued them and told me where they weren't sharp and, and where they needed work. And she really made me want to be a good student. I wanted to, to do well in her class because she was pushing me. And I responded really well to that. And it's one of the things that taught me how to be a good student and, mm -hmm. and to move forward, going forward, to want to do well at everything that I did. I was listening to your story and you mentioned a coach or someone who's, who uh, gave you a key or access to something. Can you, can you fill me in on that? Yeah. So that's, that's a trip back to high school. We had a athletic director and I don't want to get him in too much trouble, but um, he had called me into his office and he made sure to tell me that the keys for the gymnasium were in the upper upper left hand drawer of his desk and that he had to leave to go to a meeting 
and that I shouldn't go in that drawer no matter what um, <laughs> with a wink of his eye. And as he left the room, I, I quickly, um, <laughs> I got the message. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. It's, it's like a movie. It's like a movie uh, script or something like that. Hearing, hearing these things. So, okay. So you finished college, you did a year of work back in Minnesota then you went to Bridgewater State. Okay, so how'd you become a Christian? Man, I became a Christian. Well, we have to stop at that elementary school quick. We, we got to stop there because there's a principal at that school that was a faith-filled man. He wasn't a Christian, but he had some sort of faith in, in God and in in the Bible. And I was drawn to that. I had gone to church, like I said, with those teammates in undergrad and was kind of interested. I thought the Bible would, if nothing else, lead me to be a pretty good person. And so I asked him one day, how do I make a decision about this? Mm. Um, now he had his PhD um, in, in schooling. And so he was an intellect of sorts. And he said, the best way to make any decision is to make an informed decision just try reading the Bible once. And so that was at the very end of that elementary school year. So that was in June. And through that summer, I read the Bible every single day. I um, read through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Um, and by the time I got to Bridgewater, um, September 16th, I actually have the date um, when a dorky little african-american guy from tennessee came up to me squinting up he's a little shorter than i was and says hey man you know you want to read the bible i had been reading the bible every single day and you would think that this is just what i was hoping for <laughs> i mean i could have taken a right but i took a left and i ran right into him and i said no i don't i'm not interested um but earlier that day i had had read the story of samson and samson is this story of almost a hercules like guy and i i didn't understand it at all and so i said but i do have one question for you since we're here who is this hercules guy in the bible and larry didn't have much of an answer for me um and so i had no use for him i said all right, man, out of my face, you know, here's my number. And this is totally God working. I was like, here's my number. If you text me in three weeks, no more, no less. It's got to be exactly 21 days from now. I'll do one Bible study with you. I was getting rid of this guy. I, I was never going <laughs> to hear from him again. I was all set. And I continued on my way. And three weeks later, no more, no less, 21 days. <laughs> I get a text message. Hey, man, this is this is Larry. I ran into you. You asked me about Samson. Um, you said you'd study the Bible with me. When should we do it? Wow. Well, I'm a, I'm a noble guy, Rob. I was <laughs> like, okay, I'll be a man of my word. I'll get rid of him today. And so I went and I sat down with Larry and I'd still been reading the Bible every single day. And it was a good study. And then I did it to him again. He asked, all right, when should we set up the next one? And I said, 
Well, you know what? Um, if you text me in a month from now, no more, no less, 30 <laughs> days, I'll do one more study with you. Sure, I'll bite. And one deep breath in and a deep breath out, smile on his face. He says, okay, great. Let's do that. 30 days later, it happened again. I got that text message. And while I was being stubborn, God really uses to develop faith in me. It's in the book of Romans where it says the word produces faith. Well, I didn't really believe in a God the first time, the first day I met him. But over the case of those 51 days, through me being in the Bible and reading these stories, and then those first two studies, faith was being built in me. God was working in my heart. And it prepped me to be able to receive that second study and to really be interested by the end of that. So, and so you told him, you have to text me three weeks from now, not within three weeks, not any time within three weeks, but exactly three weeks from now. Yeah, I was a real, I was a real gracious person. I was the exact <laughs> type of person you want to reach out to. <laughs> what? Why? What? Tell me, what was your thinking? My thinking was I was going to get rid of this little nerd coming up to me. Um, I say that with affection as Larry is one of my best friends now, Larry mm -hmm. McNary. Um, and, you know, when I say God couldn't have put a more perfect person on my path that day. Um, in, in Acts, it, you know, the Bible talks about appointed times and places. Well, Larry was put on that sidewalk on that day to meet me um, because I found out later that Larry had actually shared that story as good news um, during a campus training lesson a little while after that. He had shared the good news of this guy that was going to study the Bible with him in, in three weeks. <laughs> and there's not another person I know that wouldn't have said, well, I'm never going to hear from him again. Right. right. And He's just this faith-filled, committed-to-God disciple, and he was exactly who I needed at that time. Wow, that's awesome. Okay, so then 30 days later, you do the second study. Your faith has grown in the meantime. Where did, yeah. where did things go from there? It changed everything. I just got super interested. I had someone showing me, what I was reading, I felt like the Ethiopian eunuch, mm. you know, show me what I'm reading. How can I know unless someone tells me? I got humble is what happened. It was, it was pretty cool. I started as it progressed. Now we're into the spring semester. It's after winter break. And I start going on these long prayer walks, trying to understand what I'm learning in these studies. And, you know, I'll, I'll go on these three hour prayer walks and my basketball teammates are texting me because I played basketball at Bridgewater State as well. Um, I have my basketball teammates texting me, dude, it's two o'clock. Are you drunk? Like, are, what's going on? Because I got my hands raised. I'm talking to nobody because I'm really convicted by what I'm learning. And so April 10th, less than two years ago, um, I got baptized because I just became completely convinced that this God of the Bible was the creator of the universe. And this guy, Jesus, really did die so that all of that mess, all of that sin that I had been involved in and participated in could be forgiven just so I could have 
a chance at a relationship with God. I mean, it blew me away. It still does to this day. Last night, I was on the phone praying with a brother, just crying because of how grateful I am for what God's done with my life. It makes me wonder how you're grateful to God. It could have been easy for you to get bitter toward God. Go, you know, my life has been a mess. Grew up in a really rough background, a dangerous uh, situation growing up. How how were you able to interpret events that way? How'd you how'd you make sense of your background? How'd you navigate it spiritually? Yeah. So at first, I was just really grateful that I could have a relationship with God. About a year later, once I had been a Christian for about a year. I was really struggling with my mental health. I was struggling with how, well, that very question, why am I not bitter? Why, why me? What is God using this all for? And we have a teacher up here in Boston named Gabe Santos that I was able to sit down with at a spring retreat. And he really encouraged me to walk through those hardest moments in my life. And there was um, three in particular, there was one where one of my mom's boyfriends had held a gun to my head. Um, there was one as a ninth grader wondering when my parents were going to pick me up after a basketball game and they just never came. And there was a third, um, this whole, um, this, this time, another time with my mom's boyfriend where I had to choose to be forgiving. And I went through all three of those hard times in my life, imagining Jesus in the room with me in some way or another, not keeping me from suffering, but being with me in the hardest times of my life. And for about two, three weeks, I did that every day, really, really intentionally um, knowing that, that Jesus has been with me throughout my whole story and um, and God has cared about me the whole time. And so that that practice of of just where was he and and really imagining just how he was keeping me safe and keeping that finger from being pulled when the gun was being against my head, sitting next to me on that bench as I was waiting for my parents, as I was dribbling the ball between my legs. And, you know, it, it really brought comfort to me and, and it helped me reconcile these these hard times and just understanding how God was going to use basketball as a tool to get me out to Bridgewater State, how he was going to use the hardships in my family to be and, and me growing up to be able to reach out and, and comfort others someday um, because of the comfort that I've been given through Christ and, and reconcile these things that um, that God's answering for my suffering wasn't that I shouldn't suffer, but that he participated in that suffering with me. Mm. And, and I have a God that, that can relate to me and that knows the hardships that I've been through and has been through even more hardships than I have and still, still chose to, to be there with me. That must have taken a lot of courage to face down those events from the past rather than just ignore, shut it out, turn it off. Yeah. Yeah. 
to talk about um, working out your faith um, through 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 tears um, is what I was doing. I, I had to. It wasn't enough for me to just know that I was loved and that I was saved, but I I had to really wrestle with God to to understand. And it was about three four weeks of just bitter tears, night after night after night, um, lots of anger anxiety and trying to understand um, where my story um, ultimately fit into God's and just how my testimony wasn't just my own, but my testimony ultimately is God's and, and just how glorious he is in, in pulling me from where I was. What advice would you give to a person who is wrestling with, with, you know, either mental health issues or has experienced traumatic experiences. What what advice would you give them in terms of working through that? And and you know, a person who really wants to make this life count, but is has a real burden to overcome. Yeah, I think obviously that depends if that person's a Christian or a non-Christian, and it also depends on if they're in the midst of that suffering or if it's. Um, really making amends with the past. But I think in all of this, um, as a Christian, I think we're allowed and we're able to actually go through with the feeling with courage to, instead of running away from the hard feelings, I think as, as Christians, just as we're able to feel joy even more than someone that, that isn't, we're, we're also able to feel those hardships even more because they're not what ends up defining us anymore and being able to sit and wrestle with god and say this is what i'm feeling and that being okay and they're not being guilt or shame for being mad at god or or for um even being mad at, at people in your past for the ways that it all worked out but i think of um the story of Joseph um, in the book of Genesis, right? Where at the end of the day, he said, oh, yeah, I went through these hardships, but he was still able to forgive his brothers um, because he's able to, to see and, and to know how God used him for good of, of many, many others. And that's, that's really where I've had to get to is um, God's going to use all the hardship that I have been through, that I am going through, um, to really be a light um, to many people that maybe haven't found a Christian yet that they could relate to with those hardships or that is willing to get open about the things that they've gone through. Mm. It's funny you mentioned Joseph in preparing for this podcast. I was thinking about that story and how Joseph was able to interpret his events. And when he ran into his brothers, he said, it wasn't you who sent me here. It was God. Yeah. Uh, though you meant me harm, it was it was God, and He was able to incorporate God into the big picture and not come come away bitter, but just he just got a lot stronger. He just became yeah. a, a very powerful personality. So it's That's interesting beautiful. that that you were able to find inspiration in that. That's Absolutely. crazy. Okay, so you've been involved in Chance of a Lifetime, which is a missionary training program in Boston. How'd you get, how, and why'd you get involved in that? Yeah, this is, this is one of my favorite stories. So chance of a lifetime, um, 
you know, they start out in, in Philadelphia and then they come to Boston for a little while before they're sent overseas during this um, missionary training. But chance of a lifetime, because I've only been in Boston um, as a disciple, has been all that I've known as a Christian. Larry McNary, the one I was talking about earlier, he was on the first iteration, the first season of Chance of a Lifetime. And then the next year, while I'm still at Bridgewater finishing my degree, Keenan Mitchell and Brielle Almonte come to Bridgewater State University. And I mean, Keenan is, will be the best man at my wedding. Um, he's, um, yeah, became just a best friend. We spend at least a, a night a week together. And, and Brielle is one of the most encouraging sisters I know. She's also one of my very, very good friends. And so season one was Larry and Chelsea and Shawnee at Bridgewater State. And, and so they were my first um, campus leaders. They were the first people I know. know. And then Keenan and Brielle come to Bridgewater State. And they're on season two. And now they're my <laughs> campus leaders. And so they're all I know. In the meantime, I start dating a sister named Chelsea Lazan, who was on Chance of a Lifetime season one, who's now my fiance. Oh, boy. And, and so it's, it's all I've known as a disciple. And so as I was maturing spiritually relatively quickly, I was looking at where could I go learn and go say thank you to God for just the ways he, he's changed my life. And so me entering Chance of a Lifetime season three was really a choice to devote a certain amount of time in my life to just say thank you, to just show gratitude and, and give up all of my plans for, for God for a, a period of time to learn how to, how to grow his church and, and to learn how to just be a strong disciple and get trained up and to um, be able to do the things that that other people learned how to do that ended up impacting and changing my life. Um, it'll, it'll actually be cool by the end of this internship, I will have been on chance of a lifetime as a disciple longer than I have been a disciple, not on chance of a lifetime. <laughs> okay. So essentially you were converted in on the mission field for chance of a lifetime. Basically they sent sent people down there or hired people there and then the yep. second year same thing so you kind of grew grew up in that environment as yeah. a young christian okay one question i had for you is how did you still have eligibility to play basketball after going four years to undergraduate yeah so what had happened is when my mom died i actually wasn't able to play um i had responsibilities at home and so while i was able to do um tennis and track in undergrad. I was on the school teams for those two sports, actually. Um, I wasn't able to keep playing basketball because it was in the winter. And like I said, at the beginning of the podcast, we heated with wood. And so someone had to make sure the house was warm in the winter time. And so I wasn't able to play basketball, but I had still had that dream um, as I finished up undergrad. And so when I went to grad school, I had a COVID year and I had a hardship year um, of eligibility to use, and that's what I did. Wow, that's what a, what a story! Heating with wood—that's crazy. Okay, now 
have you gone overseas? Tell me where you're at in the program for Chance of a Lifetime. Yep. So I'm still in Boston. I'm in the awesome South Cities region of the Boston Church. And then very shortly, I'll be going to Lagos, Nigeria to get to spend some time pouring out and also being poured into by their awesome, awesome ministry. Okay. And then after that, what are your plans? What are your plans for the future? Plans for the future are undetermined. Um, It is likely I'll have a wedding very shortly after finishing up the overseas portion. And then Chelsea and I will find a new place. Um, Neither of us particularly want to stay in the Boston area. We're from Seattle and Minnesota, respectively. And and New England has a temperamental and uninhibited default to their population here that um, we're ready to not be in anymore. And so we're kind of looking at options for after um, this season of life. How, what do you mean? What, what are you saying? The, the temperament of the people? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Boston people are a little crabby is what I'm saying. <laughs> Okay, you're the per- first person I've ever heard mention that on a public uh, pub- public platform. Can you t- right, right, right? What, how would you? How would you? I just... totally. I, I don't mean the people in the church. They're awesome. They're welcoming. <laughs> they're encouraging. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> how would you describe the difference between Midwesterners and Boston, the average Boston person? So there's actually there's actually a term called Minnesota nice. I grew up in Minnesota nice. I was one of the more friendly people of the people in Minnesota. And we're, we're the type that are going to talk to you and be warm and, um, yeah, and invite you into our home, even if we don't know you, these sort of things. And, and Boston people are a little more skeptical. They're a little mm-hmm. more reserved. And everywhere that I've been, I've, I've been to 44 states now. So everywhere within the United States that I've been, I think it's true that once you get to know people, there are just as friendly and kind and encouraging individuals everywhere. But the default in Boston is a little bit more standoffish. Got it. Got it. I, my wife is from Boston and I remember visiting okay. her when we were dating and engaged. And I remember just going through the checkout line at a grocery store and I thought, this uh, cashier hates my guts, you know, (laughs) no eye contact, no, no small talk, no conversation. I thought, what is going on around here? And then, you know, Pam had to clue me in and that's just the way it is here in the Northeast. So yeah. Interesting. Where does the motivation come to help other people? You, you've got definitely a, an effervescence. There's a, there's a passion it'd be really easy for you to focus just on getting your own life together, kind of picking up the pieces. Where's that motivation coming from? Yeah, I think originally, right? Like I, I stepped into social work to help people is um, not everyone gets the opportunities that I had that would have, not everyone would have, you know, a, a bunch of different families willing to open up their homes for them that would, make sure they get into college. And, and so originally my motivation to help people was that I wanted to make sure um, that people that weren't as lucky with me or didn't have the same personality characteristics as me would get some of the same opportunities. There's a big opportunity gap in the United States that I wanted to help close in one way or another. It's um, one of the reasons I got my master's in public administration. Um, 
But then as a disciple, now my motivation is changed drastically. Now I do it because my creator, of, you know, the creator of the whole universe, God is, has cared for me in the same intimate ways. And, and he just shows so much care and love and, and thoughtfulness um, that I want to be able to reflect that to people. And, and that's, that's why I want to help people now is because I've been helped so much. Like how, how could I not turn mm. for me? How could I not turn and just show um, gratitude for what all has been given to me? In doing a little background research, you had mentioned that you read over 700 books. Okay. Yeah. Is, so that well, was, is that true? And secondly, how, how'd you know it was 700 books? So when we lost the house to the bank, which was back in middle school, I had a library in my room. I had a built-in shelf that wrapped around my room and I had 764 books. It's been, it's been noted and I had read every single one of them. Wow. So now at this point, the number is probably a little over a thousand somewhere, but yeah, at that time, back in middle school, I had, I had the exact number. It was 764 books in my collection. And I just, I loved reading. Mm. So that was kind of a source of retreat for you to, to read, to kind of get away. from. Oh, things. it was. And being from rural Minnesota, I had hour and a half bus ride in the morning and an hour and a half bus ride at night. And I didn't like talking to people. And so that's what I did is I read and I read and I read. Wow. Wow. Well, Jordan, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for coming on the program and all the best to you in the future. Is Chelsea going with you to Lagos? Chelsea is staying back behind in Boston. She'll be doing some of the wedding planning, God willing. And then we'll have an awesome, awesome time coming back together once I get back. Are you planning on working in the secular world? Do you want to do ministry in the future? What are you thinking? I am trying to find uh, a way to potentially um, have a ministry type of impact, um, but in maybe like a, some sort of organization similar to Hope. Um, that has global impact. I really want to work on the global scale um, and use my social work and public administration and ministry background to help people in that way. That's great. All the best to you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Rob. Thanks for listening. Here's how you can help support the program. First, hit the subscribe button and let your friends know about it. Secondly, read and review one of my books either How to Plant and Grow a Church or Courage, How to Make This Life Count. You can find them on Amazon.com because my goal is to inspire you to make this life count, live a no regrets life, and multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. Have a great day and make this life count. <laughs>